Welcome to episode 90 of the Pirate Monk Podcast. We're getting close. Wow. And uh, coming to you live from somewhere. Somewhere. I do believe we are high above the Mellow Mushroom in metropolitan Franklin, Tennessee. Different feel today. It Sun's is. going down. Yeah. It's usually coming up. <laughs> <laughs> change, change the time today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, we have... Uh, Aaron Porter, the Commodore, with us via the telephonic device today. Uh, device yeah. Today. yeah. I, am, I am sitting in a parking lot being rained on. It's awesome. Well, you guys have gotten like all kinds of crappy weather out there, haven't you? No, it's actually been like 65 to 75 for the last week where I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, today is the first day we're getting a little drizzle. Oh, okay. All right. Did somebody else get bad weather? Oh, it seems like. Did you have some bad weather just a few weeks ago? I mean, all uh, I know, we, what? It rained, it rained for a couple of days, a couple of weeks ago. That was, oh, that was good. We needed it. Okay. He always downplays the weather. <laughs> just, just to make us feel like crap. Yeah. <laughs> we we want it to rain. We need to get our 12 inches a year. It's bad if we don't get our 12 inches a year. So mm, 12 inches. I think, I think we got like three a couple of weeks ago. We probably yeah. got that in the last 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, amazing. Well, uh, Aaron, you are up. To, you and your darling wife are up to all kinds of craziness. It, oh yeah, I don't think we should talk about that so much yet. Oh okay, all right. Then <laughs> we won't. It's not. It's not public yet. Oh okay. Mm. All right. Well, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll take it down. I'll take it down off my uh, blog then. That's episode ninety-one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you you thought you knew what craziness I was talking about, but uh, yeah, you probably did. You guys are just nuts, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, life going well for you, for you out there? Uh, you and Dane still killing it at uh, at Vintage? Oh no, killing it sounds like that we frantically try to do anything. We just <laughs> hang out with <laughs> the most laid back church in California, and that's. Saying something. I, I've got to go. <laughs> I've got to go. Oh, come on, Lee. This is a this is a purpose driven state. There's a lot of people trying to accomplish a lot for the kingdom of God. Yeah. Uh, we we are uh, yeah we're having a good time, and uh, I love I love that in this season as we start the fourth or the fifth year, we passed our four year anniversary of the church plant, which is amazing. Yeah. And uh, just watching people coalesce, and it's kind of like this is their community, mm-hmm. this is their home, yeah. and so we've got a lot of a lot of brokenness and sickness and hurts, and people are bringing that to each other now with a lot of confidence. That's beautiful, and that's just been a lot of fun, and we get to do that too because I know we already did the interview portion of this podcast. Oh, go ahead and, and dispel the magic. Yeah. All right, do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I, I did, I did mention in that part that this really is a place that we get to go to church, so we get to bring our, our hard stuff too. Oh, that's beautiful. That's cool. Yeah, you know I love that about the Samson Society as well. I loved uh, going to our meeting this Monday, and not having to be uh, the fifty foot Jesus, not having to be the Nate. Just mm-hmm. in fact, what I love is there's another there's another guy named Nate in our group now, young guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so even when I'm not there, if, if, if visitors show up, uh, Nate's there, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, 
and I, you know, and and just be a guy and bring my current struggles. You know, I was I always wondered about that for you. Uh huh. You know, like it's been so much time now. Like, how yeah. is it for you to go to a meeting? Uh, yeah, here, people know you. I mean, yeah. we, we see you working yeah, yeah. every day, but especially when you go to other cities. I mean, what is that like for you? Can you be Nate, or are you are, are you the, the figure, the Nate? Yeah, I try to be uh, just Nate. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? There still is this performer part of me that uh, is still very much alive, yes. and I and I know that people have expectations. I also know that I have some experience in this way of life that uh, a lot of times when I go to a new city, there are people there who need the benefit of the experience who don't have it. Gotcha. And they're looking to me to share. And it's a difficult line to walk For sure. uh, to continue to talk about my sin in the, in the present tense, mm-hmm. not to spin some fanciful, magical, unrealistic story of glorification in my life, but be able to talk about progress and uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, redemption, and still be life-sized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I try and I try to lead with weakness, but it it does get tough. Yeah, and I think that's true for for anybody who's who has any kind of an itinerant ministry. I know it's true of uh, the guys from here mm-hmm. in Franklin and Nashville, the, all the touring musicians that we have. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, all the folks we have on the road doing ministry. So how is it different? Because now Mondo's bringing up this whole. This is supposed to be just like a little checking in banter time, but but Mondo went for the jugular, so yeah. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm 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 taking the testicle. So here we go. <laughs> Can I say that? Do we have a seven second delay? You might have to beep that. And that's all right. uh, so good. So when you talk about your masks in the book, yeah, how is this different? Because Kind of what you said is there's still you still own that mask. It's mm-hmm. still in the drawer. Right. So how is it? How does it feel different, or is it a whole different mask, or is it not a mask? How how is it different than what you described before you were in community? Well, I think it's well. No, I think the mask is different. Uh, and I, I hesitate to call it a mask, but I will tell you this, that there is, I'd, I'd prefer to call it a, a, an aspiring persona. Uh, you know, Samson Nate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not, you know, not content just to be a pirate monk, but wanting to be ca- captain of the damn ship, right? Right, right? And I did say damn, didn't I? Yeah. That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. Okay. Um, the private guys that just said damn when they heard you say it. <laughs> Uh, and it's what makes it a little what makes it uh, doubly difficult is that um, I have a story to tell um, that I'm telling uh, over and over again to new audiences but I'm I'm telling essentially the same story in essentially the same way mm-hmm. week after week month after month year after year that can become and I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm still able to be emotionally present in the story and it's not like I just sit back and mail it in. But I do notice this. I notice that I come more alive when I can break from the script, when we can do a Q&A session. Mm. Oh, yeah. give me a chance, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? 
or in the conversations that I get to have on the side with uh, pastors and leaders or guys who've been affected by the presentation and, and, and a chance to talk who want to connect later. Um, and to me, that's a sign. The fact that I can, uh, I feel more alive in those sessions tells me that something a little less than perfectly healthy is going on uh, when I'm making the standard presentation. I don't know how to fix it. Uh, I can admit it, uh, but I'm not sure how to fix it. I'm open to suggestions. Now, Mondo, you've been uh, spent a lot of your time in platform ministry. You know what that's like, right? Yeah. Being in front of the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, kind of what we're going to discuss later in the interview, or mm-hmm. what's been discussed in the interview. Uh-huh. Um, there are people in certain circles that we attend that do need us to be that figure they look to. Mm-hmm. But there's also the person that God made us to be where we need to be able to dump too. Yeah. So I think because we have those platforms, we almost have to have um, two different uh, approaches to meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when, I, when I've gone to a meeting, I've taken a, a, a brother with me who was really scared to go, uh-huh. um, and I sit in the group with him. Mm-hmm. I, I still do my thing, but he's also very much trying to feed off of me. Right, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but then when I go by myself, mm-hmm. There's none of that. Mm-hmm. There's natural mondo that God made day one, yeah. innocent form. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, um, I don't know what the balance is, but I do know I don't want to let the brother down who is looking to me for direction, support, mm-hmm. yeah. whatever it is. I don't want him to to run and flee because he thinks that I'm scared. Yeah, right. or he thinks that I'm whatever. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. So I, I think it's just a, a person. The healthy balance is making sure, I believe, that you operate in both versus just operating in one. Uh-huh. If, yeah. you, if you have, like, for instance, if you're a pastor or a person like you, yeah. myself or Aaron, and all we do is operate in that per, that place of influence. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the, the part of the balance is making sure that there is a place or places that we can be are just butt yeah. naked selves, man. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, and I think we also have to remain conscious. <clears throat> in those moments when I, you know, I go on some uh, uh, fl- uh, rhetorical flight trying to make a point, you know, and I mm-hmm. and I wax poetic, and mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, you know, I start to talk a little bit bigger than I am. Right. It's important for me, I think, to remain conscious of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I think what really got me into deep trouble during my years of being both a pastor and an active addict was when I was in the pastor mode I could I could imagine in that moment that I wasn't an addict I could shut it down I could and I could believe my own press mm-hmm. and there is and Tom uh, TC uh, Ryan talks about this in his book this tendency toward grandiosity mm-hmm. that addicts have holy yeah. smokes yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, I still see it yeah. uh, I still have the Ability and at times the tendency to talk in grandiose terms. Uh, I think it's crucially important when I do so to remain conscious of what I'm doing and and make conscious uh, efforts after those words have left my mouth to trim them back to make them a little bit more honest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 
Isn't it, isn't it interesting that God's the real ministry of the kingdom and the amazing truth of the gospel has absolutely no need of embellishment? Yeah. And the preacher who is coming from real community within the true church knows that mm-hmm. that they they're not they're not bringing something extra yeah. to the table. Yeah. It's the person who's hiding. That has to bring the extra stuff. Oh, buddy, that's so true, man. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm a walking testimony of that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I've I've noticed, and Nate, you and I have really discussed this, but uh, I'm in a season now where there's a lot of men uh, in my church circles and other, you know, just men around me who yeah. are who are looking to me, and and I will say I w- I've been pretty frightened from time to time because. I didn't want to get back on that thing you just referred to. Yeah, yeah, uh, Aaron. I didn't want to get back to that place of of trying to embellish. And I said, you know what? I'm going to live in my space. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk from my space. Yeah. I'm going to in, uh, encourage from my space. Mm-hmm. And I tried it. Yeah. And man, it just pierced guys to the core. Yeah. And it has developed community and relationships with some guys that I never thought I would be friends with. Yeah, yeah. That we never thought twice about even sitting down. Like, you know, see a, see a guy. Yeah. I never thought some of these guys I'd be sitting down and sharing life with. Yeah. But as soon as I spoke from that place of not trying to embellish and, and yeah. criticize the gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, and, and just talk from my experience and what I know and what God has done with me, through me, and yeah. for me. Yeah. And, and just talk about who I am. Yeah. Man. Brother, that that I have found that makes us magnetic. People have I think that I think that the danger, the klaxon siren goes off uh, when people sense danger, uh, when they sense that somebody is um, pretending to be better than they are, bigger than they are, talking a bigger game. Speaking the, the what call it, the Christianese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we dial it back, and folks move in because they sense safety. Man. Well, that's good stuff. Well, we have got a dynamite uh, interview coming up with a great friend who I'm just so excited to introduce our our listeners to. We'll do that in just a moment when we come back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Pirate Monk uh, Podcast. Our special guest today is T.C. Ryan, Tom Ryan, author of the great new book, Ashamed No More, A Pastor's Journey Through Sex Addiction. Uh, came out, I believe, just this last year on University Press. Tom, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Nate, thanks for having me. It's a privilege to be among the pirates. <laughs> well, Only if you weren't captured. Yes. <laughs> oh, but I was captured. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like so many of us, yes, I was captured, and uh, finding the mercy and the grace to get free is a wonderful thing, but we've got a lot of brothers that are still captured, right? That's, so. yeah, yeah. I'll tell We're you what, ho- I appreciate it. On holy work. Yeah, I appreciate so much about your your book, Tom, and I think uh, one of the things that impressed me most was your willingness. Uh, 
Why don't you go into you know the the prurient details of of your own um, acting out? But you were so honest in the book about the the process that you are walking through, that you continue to walk through this process of recovery. And you didn't offer anybody a magic solution, uh, but in that realistic depiction of your journey toward healing, um, I think you gave the reader a ton of hope. Um, so just to let our readers know, Tom, you're a, you spend an awful lot of time in the church and in church leadership. Tell us about that. Right, yeah. I uh, grew up thinking I'd become a high school English teacher and somewhere in the middle of college uh, through friends, really, that I was close to. I was involved with Young Life and doing campus Bible study uh, stuff on the campus of the University of Missouri and felt really called in the ministry. And uh, I'd grown up a Presbyterian, uh, went into the Presbyterian ministry, studied at Fuller, studied at Princeton like you did. I just did one year at Princeton. Um, and then um, became an assistant pastor, and then associate, then executive, then planted a church in 1989 and pastored that church for 19 years. So yeah, a lot of years uh, in uh, two different Presbyterian denominations. A lot of a lot of work with people, yeah. uh, a lot of opportunity to preach, a lot of great things that went on. And uh, you know, it was a privilege, um, as you know, ministries a high drain as well. Anybody that's in it knows that it can be a high burnout thing, but. Uh, Burnout or ministry stress wasn't the reason for my my problem. My problems were were mine from my upbringing and my personality and the way I coped and shortcutted and and uh, had stumbled into ways to uh, alter my moods or handle my feelings. And I didn't know that that was what I was doing. I didn't understand that that was the dynamic. Uh, none of us, I, Nate, you know this. None of us sign up, you know, at age five and say sex addict. That's what I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, give me a fireman's hat and a sex addict's badge, and I'm good to. <laughs> go uh no you know we that's, stumble that's, into uh, an act that's, that's, that's too much of a visual picture there now i'm, I'm stuck with that <laughs> now now so, don't don't pass that real quick because you you said all right here you are you you went so fast you're in ministry for 19 years but you said you grew up with something part of your past of growing up kind of led you on trajectory and how you chose to cope with things. Tell tell me a little bit about those things that put you on a path Sure. that instead of brotherhood and openness or community, you chose, especially as a pastor, you chose another path of isolation and addiction. Right, right. Um the parallels in my life, spiritual versus shortcutting through obsessive behaviors, started from the get-go. By that I mean we went to church. We were a church-going family. Church was a part of my life from the from the very beginning. So every week we were in church. I was in Sunday school. I was a good kid. I went to church services. I went to youth camp in the summers. I had a God consciousness pretty early on. I... Uh, really believed in these things. Uh, for crying out loud, we had neighbors who were Baptists, and so I wandered into their house and watched Billy Graham on TV and prayed the prayer of the seven-year-old. And, mm-hmm. and so that I had this religious-slash-spiritual piece 
And when I say spiritual, though, the, the thing was we went to church, we talked about church, but in my family of origin, we didn't, we didn't really have a – we weren't evangelical. We didn't have a keen faith consciousness. We didn't talk about the personal aspects of faith. There was a lot of uh, function, but not a lot of uh, personal application. It wasn't an open family system, and that was the other half of it. Uh, emotionally, my family was chaotic and deprived it wasn't a good place to be um, and of course as a kid you don't know that you just deal with life as it comes and you think that your world is like everybody else's world and your home is like everybody else's home but when later on I'd go back and do the excavating of, of what was life really like it was emotionally chaotic it was threatening it was crazy it was up and it was down and it wasn't safe and what I gravitated towards were things that I could do or ways in which I could employ my imagination to make myself feel better, feel more safe. Mm. And I found food. I could sneak food. And, and my, my goodness, when I'd eat certain things, I'd feel a lot better. And then as adolescence came along and the wonder of sexual stimulation and arousal and imagination and lust, all those things, away I went. I found a way to create an imaginary world in which I was in charge, in which my wishes were gratified, in which I felt safe, I felt good, I felt happy, I felt up. And um, that, that discovery of sexuality and lust and self-gratification, man, that was a powerful, powerful antidote. for the craziness and the dullness of my life. Yeah. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Oh man, does that make sense? Uh, I got I got locked in early on. I mean, early adolescence, and and of course back then we didn't have language for this. Uh, there was no conversation in my family about sexuality or about uh, what it meant to be a man or what it meant to be human for that matter. Uh, we just didn't talk about those things, and I realized that my parents. Um, didn't have language, didn't get that parenting themselves. I understand that. And I, and I shame no more. I try and be really careful to say I had to excavate my, my stuff and find out what was handed on to me. But then again, my life is my life. My choices are my choice. And um, I didn't sign up to be an addict, uh, but the opportunity to recover is my opportunity and it is my, my responsibility. Yeah. So then when you came in as a pastor, which, just to put this in, in perspective, um, as we, the listeners know, about four years ago, I planted a church with a friend, and we don't use the word pastor there because the guy that I planted the church with and I wanted to actually go to that church, and uh -huh. pastors don't get to go to their own churches. Yeah, that's and brilliant. <laughs> great. I was, I was doing a funeral two Saturdays ago, and it wasn't for a person at our church. So almost no one there went to our church. But this woman came up to me that did, and her daughter was there that I had never met. And she said, oh, this is, this is Aaron. He goes to my church. And I almost, I almost cried because it was the first time in 16 and a half years of being a pastor that anyone has introduced me as a person that goes to their church. And I actually felt like I had community, and I didn't right. realize I didn't realize how much. Uh, I mean, I've talked about it, but until someone introduces you as someone who goes to their church, 
you don't realize how deep the feeling of isolation really is. It was that was a profound moment. So now jump to the part of the story where you're a pastor and those pieces of your early story, you're still making decisions in isolation. I'm curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like many of us back then, Aaron, we thought um, as we were growing up, and I got involved with a really vibrant youth ministry at a local Presbyterian church in the town I was growing up in, and and um, there was a lot. This was on the heels of the Jesus movement in the late '60s or '70s and all that, and. Um, you know, none of us talked about lust or compulsive behaviors. We didn't have any language for it around the sexual obsession or around uh, addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was just absolutely foreign to us. But, you know, um, being with a lot of guys, we all knew that we, we had some struggles. It was just never really talked about. But the assumption was when you found the right, quote, woman of God, close quotes, and when you got <laughs> married and and started having intimacy – then everything had fallen into place, and it would be great. And um, I found the right woman of God, Pam, and we got married in 1978, and things did fall into place. We had a great relationship, and it was super. Um, and my addictive nature laid down and was real quiet for a little while. And then he got restless and got back up, and I was shocked and dismayed and couldn't believe that I was still engaging in some of the old behaviors. And... Um, I shared that that with Pam early on, and she was justifiably really hurt um, because, you know, if you're the other person, it brings up all kinds of questions like, why am I not enough for you, and those kinds of things, and most of us have experienced some aspect of pain we've caused others, and we know that that's difficult, and we don't like that feeling. Well, I didn't like that feeling. And um, I, I resolved deeply within myself. I didn't want to hurt her. Uh, I think that another part of that was that I didn't also, I didn't want to feel the pain of having hurt her. Um, so I was going to fix this. God and I would fix this. I was not going to do this anymore. And so I would promise God with sincerity and deep conviction, I'm never going to do this again. And please forgive me. And, of course, you know, I'd go a little while and then I'd slip. And uh, the remorse and the shame that would come mm. in and the self-recrimination and the, it just, of course, made me more, more, more miserable and uh, made me need some kind of relief all the more. But because I was hidden, because I didn't have any help, because I was fixing this on my own, um, really the only outlet, again, for any kind of relief is back to the old reliable, the old drug, the old hit, the old just one more time and then we'll quit. One more time and then we'll quit. And, of course, we never quit. I took that kind of wrestling on the seminary and on into ministry. And as I write in the book, it, it never was a sense of me saying, well, this is just my deal. This is my thorn in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, it was always troubling, always uh, provocative to me, always made me feel very ashamed, made me feel less than, made me feel um, like uh, I was a hypocrite, uh, questioned my call. Um, I had gifts for ministry. I had um, my Pentecostal and charismatic brothers would say an anointing. Um, I was good at what I did, uh, but I was chaotic and dying on the inside. I was living two lives and uh, keeping a wall between them, and that doesn't work. Yeah. 
Hey, Nate, does does Tom have to pay you royalties for telling your story I and know. claiming it as it's, his own? It's, <laughs> it's freaking amazing. And the wild thing is that while I was on this same track, I was convinced I was the only guy in the world uh, who was oh, in this oh, spot. You weren't. I was the only guy. <laughs> I totally get this. Nate, and Nate, seriously, on page 10, when I was reading your book, you've got a, you've got a paragraph where you talk about uh, when you were acting out, this is after the Times Square a- 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 yeah. uh, incident, and then you go on and you talk about the mood-altering chemical cascade, which, by the way, is a great phrase. Mm. I just I kept rereading that line going, that is so well written. Yeah. And the euphoria would pass, leaving me disappointed, awash in self-loathing, cursing myself for my stupidity, and promising never, ever to do that again. I would step back into my regular life with renewed resolve, you wrote. But before long, my inner emptiness and dissatisfaction would start screaming for relief, and the cycle would begin again. I don't think I've read anybody capsulize that better than you did on page 10 of um, Samson and the Pirate Monks. That, that's just, that, that was my life over and over and over. And what we know now is that as you repeat those cycles, it just deepens those neuronal pathways in your brain. And right. even though there's a part of us that loathes that, that hates that, that fights against that, the spirit within us wars against that, we're making deeper, deeper trenches. And then when we kind of have a dull moment, wake up in the morning, go back to default settings, that becomes the pathway of relief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, I had the same sensation reading your book, Tom. I mean, just page after page after page. I'm going, yes, that's it. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I wish we had a few hours to talk. I hope uh, – I'm already asking you to come on the podcast again later. Um but let me ask you this. I uh, There's a pattern uh, that I'm seeing. It seems to me that too often uh, – as I, I, I have the privilege of watching lots of guys enter recovery for sexual addiction. Um, it seems to me that too often Christian guys are actually laboring under a handicap when it comes to recovery. There's a lot they have to unlearn before they can assimilate the new information. Um, would you say that that was your experience? Were there were there were there uh, assumptions? I'm not saying that the uh, I don't think that the gospel inhibited me in any way. And if anything, recovery has opened doors and windows on the gospel for me that I had never seen, and it really has caused my spiritual experience to explode. But the cultural Christianity that I brought uh, to this uh, enterprise actually, I feel, handicapped me early on. Uh, Does that resonate with you at all? That totally resonates with me. That definitely was my experience. And and I know you and I both love the church. Uh, we're We're not sitting here... You know, hammering at the church, and of course, I carry enormous remorse, as you can imagine. All those years, what I was—I was an associate, you know, on somebody else's staff for for like seven years, two different churches, and then planted a church and pastored that for 19 years. So, that's a lot of life in the church, plus before and now after. Yeah. And I, you know, we care about the church, but you nailed it. Cultural Christianity, there is so much baggage, and in my life, I resonate with that truth. Yeah, that was in the way. 
uh, cluttered thinking, a thinking that isn't the gospel, mm. uh, but it's been um, it's it's like barnacles that just that have clung to it and just you know clutter up the bottom of the ship, you know, and keep it from moving sleekly through the waters of life. That's that's what happens in the cultural Christianity, and I see it over and over in the guys I'm working with today. Yeah. here where I live, I, I work with lay guys in the church that Pam and I attend, and I have a group of uh, clergy guys, um, highly confidential as you can imagine, because sure. clergy guys are scared to death to deal with this. Yeah, and most of them won't won't deal with. It until they're on fire in some way, yeah. um, but in in both cases, I see that exactly the the cultural encumbrances that we put on in the in the church really do make it harder sometimes for Christians to break through in recovery uh, than for guys that don't have that kind of church experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and nobody so, feels it more acutely than the pastors. Go ahead, Aaron. You're the title of the book is a uh, a pretty brazen claim ashamed no more yeah. <laughs> you, you old son of a gun no no i'm laughing Aaron, because you just nailed the point pam and i were talking not two weeks ago and i'd had an encounter where word got back to me um that somebody in uh one of the churches had said something about me or something or other, and I just all of you know, and I got back to me, and you know, in just a split second, I was that little boy again, cowering in shame and fear in the corner of my bedroom, and uh, and you know, the Lord will bring us back through those things. We tell ourselves the truth, we ask for help, etc. We get up, we wash off, we take the next right step, we're okay. But it was amazing to me how quickly. That shame came back on, and I and I told her that we were talking about that one evening, and I said, you know, University titled the book "Ashamed No More" and gave it kind of a memoir feel. I said, I just, I really love the fact that University picked up the book. I'm humbled by that. I'm grateful for my editor. They're a great team. Uh, I, I I'm just so blessed. And it is their editorial process to, to package something in a way that they think it'll sell. So they came up with Ashamed No More. The way I had originally titled it was Shame No More, meaning multiple meanings, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to engage in self-shaming. We need to drop shame in the church. Let's uh, let's encourage one mm-hmm. another to drop shame. Let's shame no more, kind of a, an admonition, if you will. And then they have put on the subtitle of Pastor's Journey Through Sex Addiction. Um, and, and that's their choice, and I respect that and all that. But, yeah, I, I said to Pam, man, I, I can't – that title sounds like I'm done. Like you said, you raised a ton of a gun. Exactly. And, you know, we're not done. We're, while we're still drawing breath, we're not done. There's always more that the Lord's doing in our lives, and, 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 and sometimes we're going to have to go back and, and repeat some of these lessons or go back over them and deepen the, deepen the new neuronal pathways so that we really make sure we don't go back to the old defaults. And that's one where I said to her, you know, I'm not ashamed no more. I'm not there. She said, and this is my wife, she said, well, honey, and that's something that you get to talk about in your interviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I love the claim because it strikes at the core of the identity in Christ factor, that the blood of Christ, that the, the physical blood of Christ, which takes away our shame, yeah. which, 
which crucifies that old shameful self and resurrects us in the fullness and holiness and perfectness of Christ cannot be shamed and cannot be ashamed. And when that shame comes, that my claim is, oh, shame, step back. I am ashamed no more, for I am new in Christ. And that, that part of me is dead. Even when I have acted in it, that is not me, for I am in Christ. And, and that brazen claim has to be a part of my mental makeup, or I haven't yet embraced the gospel. Now, I totally agree with you, Aaron, you, and you've nailed exactly why that is a brilliant title, because that is our standing in Jesus. Mm-hmm. That is the way the Father grasps us, sees us, looks at us. Oh, about a month or a month and a half ago, I was talking with one of the younger guys that I deal with, and he was going through a pretty bad little little routine, little uh, just slipping every day and just into one of those those patterns, and he just was having a hard time getting out of it. And I was talking to him, and uh, I could just see the self-loathing and the depression just draped over him like a heavy, wet blanket. And I said, let me ask you something. Let me ask you to go back in your mind's eye and picture the last time you slipped, most recent time you slipped, and picture yourself in that room and picture Jesus standing a few feet away, maybe six feet away. Can you do that? He was quiet for a while, and then he quietly nodded, and he had his head down a little bit. And I said, now, you've slipped, and um, in the aftermath, how do you picture Jesus? How, How do you see Jesus as he's standing with you and aware of you in that room? And he thought for quite a while, and then he says to me in a slow, soft voice, he says, I see him with a very disappointed look on his face, his shoulders slump, and he quietly turns away and walks out of the room. Oh, no. Yeah, now that's what shame does to us. That's what the enemy does to us. That's what addiction and compulsion, it isolates us. Uh, Like Nate was saying, I'm the only one. There's nobody as bad as me. God's so disappointed. I mean, I was grateful that this young man could articulate how, so clearly how he perceives Jesus. So then, you know, we spent some time talking about, okay, I really respect that's how you perceive him. I have to tell you, I don't perceive him that way at all. And um, quite the contrary. I see him watching you with an interested look on his face. And then when you're done and you're there just bent over, I see him stooping with uh, care and love and putting his hands on your shoulders and saying, let me help you clean up and let's move on. I have things I want to show you. And taking you out of the room with his arm around your shoulder. And this guy just tears began to cast down his cheeks. Now, you and I know that that one moment of an exchange and a conversation between him and me, that that doesn't substantially change any of his existence. That's just Tom sharing Tom's opinion about Jesus, mm-hmm. and that's all that is. He, he needs uh, to do his own work of uh, rooting out, you know, what are the causes of that shame, and, and how does he work in this compulsion, what, uh, yeah. what are the new tracks he wants to lay down, and eventually the Holy Spirit has to give to him 
that perception of Jesus on his own. Uh, that has to become his vision, not my vision for him, you, you see. Uh, but that's what all our brothers are up against right there, that, uh, that sure. idea of, of just drenching shame and isolation and God's deep disappointment in us. Well, and the, the church has taught us this throughout. I mean, if you grew up in the church, you sang, Jesus loves me. I hate that song. First verse, fine. Second verse, Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, though it makes him very sad. He 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 turns away and goes out of the room because he's very sad when I'm bad. I hate that song, and that's there, what we teach five year olds. Yeah, yeah, yep. Uh, say, Tom, uh, I want to get your reaction to a correspondence I had recently, and uh, maybe this will lead us uh, to the work kind of work you're doing now. Uh, I spoke last month at a big uh, conference in uh, in Canada, got home, got back to the hotel that night to find an email from a guy who said, uh, something you said tonight really made me angry. Uh, I'd like to tell you about it, but before I do, is this a private email? Does anybody else read it? So I, I wrote back and said, yeah, this is private, but please tell me, you know, what what, what did I say? So the next morning there was another email, and he said, well, I'm a pastor, and um, I heard you say that the path to freedom is uh, confessing our faults one to another, being open with one another, uh, and, um, and I know that I can't do that because uh, I will lose my job. There is absolutely – I don't have the email in front of me. I intended to pull it up here, and I, I forgot to do it. But this is the essence of it. Um, if this is the only way out, basically is what he's saying, I'm, I'm toast. Um, and I, you know, I talked with the director of the, of the ministry. I didn't disclose who I'd gotten the email from, but I just said, you know, there's a pastor here who thinks that there is absolutely nobody – he can be open with, or he will lose his job. And the guy looked at me and said, well, yeah, he's probably right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. Well, you gotta, you got to love his honesty, right? Yeah. But, but, yeah, there it is. I mean, my goodness. Oh, wow. Um, I love the way in your book you uh, compassionately... Um, depict the dilemma of the pastor uh, but you have a you have a dream you have a vision you have something you see uh, something better for the pastors which is going to have if we can just get there an enormous positive effect upon the church uh, talk to us about your 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 vision for pastors and the work that you do now with with fellow pastors well um yeah, Nate. I mean that that is just such a punishing and and uh, dire picture. Because yeah, when you were talking about the email and reflecting back on it, I could I could hear the brother saying, "There's nobody I can talk to," and and we get that. You know, mm -hmm. the whole structure is is flawed, and somewhere we've really backed into a structure that I don't know how you take it apart. Um, 
in the book, and I think it's in the 12th chapter, the last chapter of A Shame No More, I talk about seven things that, that uh, we've got to do, and one of them is change how we treat leaders, and we've got to radically recalibrate our whole approach to sexual brokenness. We've got to learn to actually anticipate that leaders would struggle with their sexuality. I mean, we've got mm-hmm. to flip this thing exactly 180 degrees. We've got to turn it upside down. You know, really, I mean, the end of the day, anybody that's really paying attention to the gospel wouldn't be that surprised because <laughs> my picture of Jesus is that he's always flipping things upside down. You yeah. know, the poor are rich, you know, the yeah. mournful are going to be filled with joy. I mean, the meek are getting the whole earth. You know, it's just, it's yeah. all crazy, yeah. right? It's yeah, yeah. all upside down. Yeah. So go, Jesus, go. Take me with you, please. And, you know, so we've got to, we've got to get this idea that, that, um, that, Guys that are serving um, have to are, are struggling, are vulnerable, and they're and I don't know that they're going to be as vulnerable anywhere else than in sexuality, and primarily now because of the internet. I mean, mm-hmm. it was always I don't know what the statistics would be. God alone really knows, but I I suspect that <clears throat> throughout human history, there's been a percentage of us that have struggled with sexual brokenness, and I agree with Hugh Sampson's uh, candidate A. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a great example of that. And um, and that's always been a percentage of us. But now, because of the Internet, um, clergy have the ability to have a shortcut of a compulsive uh, secret friend, little help, little drug, little buzz uh, on a laptop or a handheld device and then close it down and their eyes aren't bloodshot and their breath isn't fouled and mm-hmm. they can drive their car, they can go do a Bible study, they can preach a service. Um, but they're crippled in their hearts and they're crippled in their souls. And until the leadership of our denominations and our Bible colleges and our seminaries start to understand that this is normal Christian behavior and normal clergy behavior, this is not the odd person. This is the majority. This is what most of them are struggling with to some degree. A lot of them have become totally compulsive. And until denominational leaders learn that they've got to really... uh, offer very safe ways for guys to get help and women too i mean Mm -hmm. we're learning now more and more uh that women are falling into compulsive sexual behaviors and why wouldn't they and um women and clergy are going to have this struggle as well and we've got to change that whole mentality and it's i don't know whether it starts in the grassroots where you build a fire with lay people and say you know you've got to change your expectations or whether you do it from the top down with the nominational leaders that that part i don't know i'm not smart enough to figure that out so to date my work is just on a very local smallish level um uh, here in the area in which i live um so I don't know how the Lord wants to break into the church at large, but he's got to do something because we've got a whole generation of clergy that are coming up and they're all going to die under this burden. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and then, like I talk about in the book, this, this cripples the church uh, mm. in measure. So, so then, you know, two years after I imploded, I imploded in 2008, left my church, um, went into my draconian psychotherapeutic extreme brain makeover period, right? Yeah. And uh, the miracle begins to really unfold, and I finally get to sustain sobriety, which I'm enjoying to this day. Thank you very much, mm-hmm. God, and yeah. all that. And about 2010, Pam and I said it's time that we need to circle back to people who've supported us and been close to us and kind of tell them the rest of the story, if you will, because my my imploding had not come out; it hadn't been public and all that. So, 
Uh, my church had been spared that. My family had been spared that. I had been spared that. But now we circled back and started to tell people those kinds of things. I was talking with a guy who was one of my supporters, and I was telling him this story, uh, my story, and all that. And he was quiet for a while. And then he says, I was sitting in church just last Sunday. And I can't remember what the preacher was talking about. But I was sitting there thinking about my use of porn during the week. And I was wondering why I was the only guy Mm. in this church (laughs) with this problem. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there it is. He'd never heard a clergyman be able to talk. Right. You know, of course, I blew my life up, and now I've become public and all that kind of thing, so now I can talk about it. But no other clergyman can talk about it. So then the guy in the pew is sitting there assuming that the clergyman doesn't have, the pastor doesn't have this problem, the the teachers don't Mm -hmm. have this problem, the Sunday school teachers don't have this problem, the other guys in this church don't have this problem. Mm -hmm. He's the only one. Yeah. Well, you know, the enemy's got us then, doesn't he? Because yeah. we're yeah. all picked off and we're on our own and, and uh, just trying to struggle through and uh, we're not going to make it by ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yours is a, a powerful prophetic voice, Tom. Um, I can't thank you enough for uh, for this book. This uh, I can only I was thrilled to see it uh, on the book table in Canada. Um, it's a yeah. It's just a just a a, a real gift, and I um, I just know that you know what you're doing now, local uh, where you live, is important. It's important foundational work, uh, but I uh, am convinced uh, that this is only preparation for a, a larger assignment for you. Brother, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, are you blogging now? Oh, my goodness. I'm under guilt and shame over not getting my blog done. Thank you for that, Nate. I really uh, yeah, appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Well, don't, don't be looking at my blog real closely. I don't think I saw <laughs> Yes, I am blogging. I've got a TC-Ryan uh, 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 website and I've uh, got a Facebook page that a friend had mercy upon me. She's a marketing strategist. She said, you, Tom, you need such help. Yeah, Bless yeah, your heart. Yeah. So she set up a Facebook page <laughs> under TC Ryan. and We're trying to uh, see if um, if what you just said is exactly what the Lord wants me to do. I'm, I'm willing to do whatever I need to do um, and if that's useful to the church and useful to our brothers that are serving in isolation because you know, ministry's hard enough. You don't need to be dealing with this on your own. Right. Well, thank you so much, Tom. So, uh, th- once again, the book is Ashamed No More, A Pastor's Journey Through Sex Addiction, published by InterVarsity Press, available at fine bookstores everywhere. And on Well, Amazon. that's the irony. I'm sorry. I know you're wrapping up, Nate. Yeah. This is rude of me. But there's the great irony. Uh, the Christian bookstores everywhere I've gone and checked in are kind of reinforcing some of the messages in the book. Um, they won't carry it. <laughs> oh, no! Yeah. 
Mine got pulled from Lifeway after some uh, after some complaints. Uh, you had to. No way. They pulled. They pulled Samson. Yeah. Well, yeah. It eventually made its way back in, but yeah, it was yanked for a while. But you could ask for it at the, and they could order it, and then it kind of be delivered in a brown paper bag. In a brown paper. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you have to go behind the counter to get your guys' books. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, but we can get it. Uh, every, we can get it on Amazon. Uh, it should be everywhere. This is. This is highly recommended reading. Wow. Uh, and uh, they can friend you on Facebook, can they? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. T. Right. C. Ryan or something. I don't get it. Uh, okay. I'm there somewhere. If, if somebody wants to find me bad enough, to, I, I'm available. <laughs> okay. All right. Tom, Eric, thanks so much. Nick, thank you so much for the privilege. I just I love your work and I love the opportunity and it's just a privilege. So looking forward to the future and let's. Uh, Let's bring some liberty to the captives, huh? Amen. All right. Lord bless. Awesome. Bye-bye. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Wow. What a great conversation. We've got to have a part two of this guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, since we did it earlier, man, I've, I've been thinking about a lot of things he said. Man. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. So many parallels with my life, your life. A lot. Yeah. I, most, I think if you're a man, there's a parallel somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And uh, <clears throat> I so appreciate um, uh, the articulate way in which Tom's mm-hmm. able just to describe common experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to shed an uncommon light, just to come at it from an unusual angle. Yeah, it's a it's a gift. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, uh, love to hear what you, the listeners, uh, got out of the podcast, out of this or any other episode. Mm-hmm. Concerns uh, that are on your mind, uh, questions you want to post, suggestions you like to make, send those to us, will you? Cigars. Oh, yeah, okay. Laugh. No. <laughs> you can email them to us. Here at samsonpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, it's Nate and Mondo, the long departed uh, Aaron Porter, Porter, and our good friend T.C. Ryan saying goodbye from the Pirate Monk Podcast. Give yourself.